This is the message given by Dr. David Van Drunen during the morning worship service at Faith Presbyterian Church, Long Beach, California, for May 28, 2023. The title of the message is Longing, Sorrow, and Zeal. Good morning. It is a pleasure to uh, be here with you again. I have good memories of being here a couple times last summer, and uh, when I was here, I preached from Psalm 119, and I would like to turn back there with you this morning. In fact, I'm going to pick up exactly where I left off, if my notes are correct, from last summer. So we will read uh, this morning verses 129 through 144. We'll read two uh, of these stanzas, and uh, this evening we will look at the next uh, two stanzas. Psalm 119, verses 129 through 144. Hear the word of God. Your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. Turn to me and be gracious to me, as is your way with those who love your name. Keep steady my steps according to your promise, and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Redeem me from man's oppression, that I may keep your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant, and teach me your statutes. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. You have appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness. My zeal consumes me because my foes forget your words. Your promise is well tried, and your servant loves it. I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is righteous forever, and your law is true. Trouble and anguish have found me out, but your commandments are my delight. Your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. This ends our reading of God's word. Let's ask his blessing upon it. Our Heavenly Father, we do give you thanks for your word. And we give you thanks for this long psalm that says so much about your word and calls us to it, uh, to pay attention to it, to find our life and encouragement in it. And so, Father, we pray that you would bless this reading and now the preaching of your word. Uh, We pray that uh, we, your people, might be greatly edified by it. We pray that we would receive it with faith and repentance And as always, we ask that you would be honored in the ministry of your word to your people. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we look at Psalm 119, the thing that does stand out the most to us is all that it says about the word of God. Uh, Almost all of the 176 verses 
use a term for God's word. It uses uh, a number of different terms, but almost every single verse uses one of these terms. And yet, as we read Psalm 119, we also realize that there is a lot more going on than simply reflection on the word of God. As important as those reflections on the word of God are, there is much more going on as well. The psalmist brings us into his spiritual experience. We learn, for example, in this psalm that this psalmist had been a great sinner. He was a rebel against God, yet he repented. He turned and had been restored into God's uh, mercy. We read that this psalmist was a sojourner which means that he was not living in the promised land of Israel. He had been driven out of the land and was now living uh, among Gentile people, far from the temple, far from his uh, inheritance in Canaan. And we also learn that this psalmist uh, was a persecuted man. He often reflects upon the wicked people who were even seeking his life. And as the psalmist takes us into this experience, we are reminded of just how relevant this psalm is for us. For who of us is not a repentant sinner? Who of us as a Christian is not a sojourner in this sinful world? And of course, we live in a world filled with evil people, many of whom hate the gospel and who hate God's people. And it is, so, it is with interest, then, that we read this psalm and uh, learn so much uh, from this psalmist's uh, reflections. Now, one of the things that we see in these stanzas before us here this morning is the psalmist reflecting on, on his inmost feelings, passions, maybe emotions— Now, as human beings, we all have deep feelings, passions, emotions, whatever we might call them. Uh, To be human is to have them. Uh, But the thing is, because we are sinners, we can experience these things in either good or sinful ways. And so if we think of anger as one of the prime passions or emotions that we feel as human beings— Well, we can feel that, experience that in righteous ways, but also, as we all know, we can experience that in very wicked ways. And so we, as human beings, we don't seek to be creatures without passions, without emotions, but we seek to experience them in the right way, to fear the right things to be sad about the right things, to be glad about the right things, to get angry about the right things and in the right way. Well, here the psalmist sets before us three very strong feelings or passions that we as human beings can and do feel. Longing, sorrow, and zeal. And the psalmist helps to show us how we should experience these things in a godly way. And so these two stanzas remind us that Scripture and the God that the Scriptures present to us 
are so wonderful and gracious and righteous that we cannot help but be moved by them. And so let's look at the first of these strong feelings or passions that the psalmist discusses, and that is longing. And we see this already in the first three verses of our text, verses 129 through 131. (coughs) Excuse me. Now, this stanza begins with a grand statement. Your testimonies are wonderful. And it's probably the case that in our ordinary common English speech, the way this is translated does not communicate the power of it. The word wonderful is, it's a common word that we use, and yet we use it for very, very ordinary things. Right? Someone, you know, someone cooks you a meal and you say, oh, that was wonderful. And what you mean by it was, it was perfectly adequate, and I'm grateful for it. But this text is not saying that God's testimonies are adequate. More literally, we might translate this phrase, your testimonies are wonders. God's word is full of wonders. And this term of wonders in the Old Testament, this is something that is almost always applied only to God. God is a God of wonders. Uh, As Psalm 72, 18 put it, the Lord alone does wonders. He brought his people out of Egypt. He made the walls of Jericho fall. He raised his son from the dead. The Lord alone does wonders. And what the psalmist is communicating here is that because the word of God tells us about the God of wonders, that the scriptures themselves are indeed full of wonders themselves. And the psalmist, you can see he is, he is moved by them. Already we begin to see that. In this very first verse, your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. We cannot help but respond to such a wonderful word. And then in this next verse, 130, we find the psalmist continuing right on track. If God's word is full of wonders, then we're not surprised that he next says, the unfolding of your words gives light. Now, again, this this term unfolding, it's a perfectly good translation, uh, but it is, uh, it's just a common Hebrew word for open, the term that you would use for opening a door, opening a window. And sometimes we use that terminology with respect to God's word, don't we? Uh, Sometimes you, you hear an edifying sermon and you say, well, the word of God was really opened for us today. And... The psalmist here, as he is reflecting on the wonders of God's word, of course, as God's word is opened, it brings light to us who, by nature, live in darkness. And you might just think of this. Imagine yourself in a room, uh, in a room with a really good thick curtain over the window, maybe in the middle of the day, and it's so dark in the room, but you throw open that curtain and just the room fills with light. 
And you see, that's how it is when God's word is ministered. Right? We are a naturally ignorant people. Because of sin, our minds are dark, and yet the scriptures come, and light opens up uh, before us. And in the second part of this verse, the psalmist uh, says that God's word, it imparts understanding to the simple. Uh, If you are familiar with the book of Proverbs, you know that you meet certain kinds of people in the Proverbs. Of course, you meet the wise man, and you meet the foolish man. But another person that you meet in Proverbs is the simple person. And the simple person in Proverbs uh, is, you might say, is one who is immature. It's one who is not either, he's not yet a wise person or a foolish person. He could go either way. It's usually a young person who is a simple person. And... Here the psalmist says it is God's word that imparts understanding to that immature person. And of course, all of us who are still living in this world, we are all still simple people in important respects. None of us have attained the fullness of wisdom as long as we are here in this world. And so as long as we remain simple people, we need the word of God to be imparting the understanding that, uh, that we require. And it's at this point then in verse 131 that the psalmist speaks of this first, what I was referring to as a passion or strong feeling, uh, and that is longing. Or you might just think of it as a deep desire. So in verse 131 he says, I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. The psalmist describes himself almost in an undignified way. You don't really, it's not really very attractive to think of people looking at you with your mouth open and panting. He's almost portraying himself as an animal. It is an animal that is hungry, that is thirsty, that needs sustenance. And the psalmist is is saying that like an animal that needs water, so it is that he, as a human being, needs the word of God. Our bodies are such that we need food and drink on a regular basis. And if we don't, we wither. And so it is with our souls. Our souls are needy. God has made us for himself. He has made us for fellowship with him. He has made us for communion with himself. And we need to be satisfied. And if we don't have the living God, if we don't have fellowship with him, we wither, our souls become dry, our souls starve. And it's interesting how how many times the scriptures use the analogy of taking in nourishment to describe our spiritual growth, our need to be fed with God and his word. And actually, just earlier in Psalm 119, uh, verse 103, the psalmist says, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Uh, In Psalm 81, uh, the psalmist uses the, the well-known expression, open wide, or God says to the psalmist, open wide your mouth and I will fill it. 
We might think of Jesus toward the opening of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. And so, brothers and sisters, we are, as human beings, we are the kind of creatures who long for nourishment. Our bodies long for nourishment. And so it is with our souls as well. Uh, We need spiritual nourishment. And where will we find it? Here, the psalmist points us to the word of God, ultimately to God himself. If God does not satisfy us, our souls will not indeed ever be satisfied. As the Apostle Peter put it at the opening of 1 Peter 2, he says, like newborn infants, or maybe we'd say like the simple, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So that brings us to the second of these three passions or strong feelings that the psalmist describes for us. And here we see this through the, the, uh, the rest of this uh, first stanza, the pay stanza that we are considering uh, this morning. So this is verses 132 through 136. Now the first four of these final five stanzas, uh, I'm sorry, five verses in this stanza are all little prayers. So verses 132 through 135, they're just a bunch of mini prayers. And in a way, this, this makes sense that the psalmist turns to prayer. I mean, he has just described himself as a longing creature, as a creature who, who needs help. He needs, he needs nourishment. And so struck by his own neediness, what does he do? He prays. And these are, these are short little prayers, but they are really... They are wonderful prayers. They are profound prayers. Consider the first one, verse 132. He says, Turn to me and be gracious to me, as is your way with those who love your name. Turn to me and be gracious to me. It's very simple, and yet it's a very deep, uh, beautiful request. Now, perhaps when I read this, or maybe just when I reread it a moment ago, you might have thought to yourself, well, there is no term for God's word in this verse. Well, if you thought that, it's understandable given the translation, but it's not accurate. Uh, The word that is translated in the ESV, way, as is your way with those who love your name, is actually one of the terms that Psalm 119 uses for God's word. And this term is usually translated rule or sometimes judgment. Now, think about this. God has a rule for how he treats people who love him. Or you might say God has rendered a judgment about his own conduct towards those who love him. And what is that? What is God's own rule? It is to turn to them and be gracious to them. Actually, using the term way uh, here 
uh, it actually captures the meaning nicely. And I've actually thought if, uh, if you want to think of uh, another term we could use, how about policy? God has a policy for how he treats you who love the Lord Jesus Christ. What, is he, what does he do? What does his policy book say? That he will keep turning to you. He will keep being gracious to you. That should be a great encouragement as we struggle uh, in the midst of the many trials of this life. And we might think of how Paul put it. Paul put it in perhaps even, even, even better way in uh, Romans chapter 8, where he said, God works out all things for the good of those who love him. It's getting at the same point that the psalmist is making here. And then we look at the second of these beautiful little prayers. Verse 133, he says, Keep steady my steps according to your promise, and let no iniquity get dominion over me. So here we see, and we're going to see this in the next verse as well, that the psalmist, well, he's, he is so spiritually insightful. And he recognizes that we as sinners living in, a, in an evil world, that we face multiple kinds of trials. There are multiple uh, things that weigh us down and endanger us spiritually in this world. And one of them is simply our own hearts. One of the great dangers of living godly lives is the sin in our own hearts. And so the psalmist here asks that God would keep his steps steady, uh, that he would, he would not incline uh, to some other way than the way that God has set before him. And he asks that no iniquity would get dominion over him, uh, that sin would not rule over him, but that his heart would be steadfast before the Lord. And here again, we might think of what Paul said in Romans. Once again, picking up a very similar thought to Psalm 119 and yet saying something even more beautiful. Uh, in Romans chapter 6, Paul says that for those of us who are in Christ, those of us who are not under the law and its condemnation, he says, sin will not lord it over you. Or sin will not have dominion over you. This is exactly what the psalmist prays for. Let not iniquity get dominion over me. And Paul declares, if you are in Christ, sin will not lord it over you. It's not that you won't struggle with sin. It's not that you won't fall into sin. But if you are in Christ, sin is not your master because you have but one master, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that too should be a great encouragement to us as we struggle with sin. And then verse 134, the third of these little prayers. He's, here the psalmist recognizes that another great danger that we face comes from without. Right? There's danger from within our own sinful hearts, but there's also danger from wicked people who would seek to oppress us, who would seek to seduce us away from God's way. And so here the psalmist prays, redeem me from man's oppression that I may keep your precepts. And then finally, the fourth of these little prayers, verse 135. He says, make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. 
as you hear this little prayer, it may remind you of the blessing that God gave to the priests in the book of Numbers. I imagine that your pastor will often conclude your worship services with this benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Almost certainly the psalmist is picking up on that blessing here and praying, make your face shine upon your servant. And as that blessing is a wonderful way to conclude a worship service, it's a wonderful way to conclude these series of little prayers. And so the psalmist has set us up. Right? He, is, he has prayed these four prayers, and then he expresses the second of these strong feelings or passions, sorrow. Verse 136, my eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Now, this may not have been the passion that we expected. I mean, you think about this. The psalmist has prayed these four prayers that contain a wealth of comforting theology. And then the psalmist speaks quite literally about how streams of water are flowing out of his eyes. And we wonder why, why, why would the psalmist be sorrowful after contemplating God's marvelous grace toward him as a sinner. And he tells us, so we don't really have to wonder. He says it's because people do not keep your law. Now, there's actually no subject to this sentence in, uh, in, in the Hebrew text. It's just because they do not keep your law. But there's good reason here to think that the psalmist is not just talking about people generally, but talking specifically about God's own people, God's covenant people. And here we can begin to see why the psalmist experiences sorrow. <laughs> he has just contemplated how wonderfully God treats his people. He causes his face to shine upon them. He has made it his policy to turn and be gracious to them. He doesn't let sin lord it over them. What great things to contemplate. And yet, how had God's people, Israel, how had they responded to God in his grace? Time and again, they had rebelled against him. They had worshipped foreign gods. They had fallen into one sin after another in the stubbornness of their hearts and... Our psalmist may well be one of the Babylonian exiles. And God, if that is the case, God had sent his people from the promised land and uh, the temple had been destroyed. I mean, this is, if we think about this, we can understand the psalmist's sorrow. Brothers and sisters, we get sad about many things. Sometimes there are very serious things, very legitimate things that we become sad about but we think about how many, how many silly things we get sad about. How many selfish things make us sad. And then we ask ourselves, when was the last time we became truly sorrowful about our sin? When were you truly grieved by the fact that you rebelled against the word of God, against your holy, gracious, loving Father? 
Here the psalmist is training us, helping us to see where our sorrow really ought to lie against our sin. You think, if it was a tragedy that Israel of old rebelled against God, how much more so for us as a new covenant church? I mean, if the old covenant people had experienced great things from the Lord, how much more have we? We have seen so many more of God's wonders. I mean, this psalmist, he didn't know about the incarnation. He didn't know about the resurrection or the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have seen things in these last days. We have experienced uh, the worldwide mission of the gospel. And yet, what a sinful people we still are. How often we as the church, instead of preaching the truth, we preach what is convenient or popular. How often we as the people of God fail to love each other as we ought. How often do we as the church bring shame upon the name of Christ by the way we conduct ourselves before a watching world? Truly, we should be sorrowful about our sin. Now, we might wonder, you know, aren't we read the New Testament and shouldn't we be a joyful people? I mean, it seems that you read the New Testament and joy should be one of the things that characterizes us most of all as Christians. And that's true. And perhaps what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10, helps us to put these things together. In 2 Corinthians 7, uh, Paul speaks about a sorrow over sin that leads to repentance. This is what we seek. We don't seek to wallow in sorrow for our sins, but we seek a genuine sorrow over sins that leads to repentance, to turning to confessing before the Lord and turning our eyes again towards the way of faith and godliness. It is when we are sorrowful for sin with repentance that we can simultaneously be a joyful people in the salvation that God gives in Christ. And so that brings us to the third of these strong feelings or passions which we find in the second of these stanzas uh, that we're looking at this morning, though we will look at this second stanza much more briefly uh, than the first one. Now, perhaps when I read this stanza earlier, you noticed how many times in these eight verses that you see the word righteous or righteousness or right. And there's a really good reason for that. Uh, see, this is the Saudi stanza. So uh, if you're familiar with Psalm 119, you may know that this is called the Tzadi stanza. That's Tzadi is a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And that means that each of the eight verses in the stanza begins with the letter Tzadi. Now, one of the common Hebrew words that begins with tzadi is the word, actually a, a couple of words that mean righteous or righteousness. And so the, psalm, the psalmist likes to do this sometimes with his stanzas. He takes advantage of the letter that he's working with to focus on a particular theme. And so here he just, he kind of overdoses on the, uh, the words righteous and righteousness and focuses our minds upon that. Well, what is, what is righteousness? Well, righteousness, 
You might think of it this way. Is, uh, you might think of a norm or a standard that sets forth proper conduct. Righteousness is conformity to that standard. That's what righteousness is. And so what would we expect the psalmist to say is righteous? Where would you expect him to find righteousness? Well, this is Psalm 119, so he finds it in God's word. And even more, of course, in God himself, to whom the word testifies. So you see this right off the bat in verses 137 and 138. Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. You have appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness. And you can see these terms used a couple other times uh, in uh, the later uh, verses of this stanza, which we, uh, we won't look at the second part of the stanza uh, in detail. Well, I want to call your attention now uh, to this, the third of these strong feelings or passions that the psalmist reflects on in these stanzas. And we find it in verse 139, and that is zeal. He says, my zeal consumes me because my foes forget your words. So what is zeal? Well, you might begin by thinking about what zeal is not. Right, we go through a lot of life only mildly interested in what we're doing. Right, I mean, life is filled with just things we have to do. Mundane responsibilities that we can kind of go through with sort of half of our attention. But sometimes there's something that happens or something that gets on our mind and it gets our full attention. Right, we can't think about anything else. It's hard to do other things because we're so focused on this particular thing. And that is getting at what zeal is. It is when you have a focus and attention on something and you just can't get your mind and conduct off of that. And this is how we are as human beings. Th things arouse our zeal. And again, it can be kind of embarrassing sometimes to think about what attracts our zeal at times. Right? Sometimes things that are not very important. Well, the psalmist helps us to see where our zeal ought to be focused. He says his zeal consumes me. Why? Because my foes forget your words. So here is the setting. The psalmist is reflecting on the righteousness of God. So think about this. God, the creator of this world, the, the governor of this world, is perfectly righteous. And everything he does, everything that he uh, says is perfectly righteous. And yet, this world is filled with enemies, with, filled with foes against God's people. And you see that there is, there's a great disconnect, you might say. A perfectly righteous God governing this world, and yet a world filled with unrighteous people who hate those who serve the living God. And this situation arouses the zeal of the psalmist. He can't get his mind off it. He can't just you know, put this to the side. Right? It consumes his focus. 
Now, as we think about this, it's, it's important for a moment to reflect upon the fact that Scripture describes God as zealous. Right? God has a zeal. What does God have a zeal for? Uh, the book of Isaiah is perhaps the book of Scripture that speaks about God's zeal the most. And repeatedly in Isaiah, the prophet tells us that God has a zeal to deliver his people from their enemies. That's another encouraging thing. Right? When we feel overwhelmed by the wickedness of this world, remember that God is in heaven and he is zealous to deliver his people from all their enemies. Also in the book of Isaiah, one of the most famous texts in Isaiah, one of the most famous texts in all of uh, the Old Testament, in Isaiah uh, chapter 9, uh, in this great prophecy of the coming Christ, we read about uh, the, this child who was going to be born, who was wonderful, counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And if you read another verse, Isaiah says, and the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. God, even centuries before Christ came, was zealous to send his Messiah to deliver his people, to accomplish salvation. And so you might remember in John chapter 2, when the disciples saw Jesus clearing the temple and they remembered that verse from the Psalms, right? zeal for your house will consume me. So when Christ himself came, he was zealous to finish the work that God had given him. He was not half focused on it. He was zealous to accomplish the work of his father. And so that raises the question before us, how are we to be zealous for God in light of his righteousness and the unrighteousness of this world? Well, the book of the New Testament that speaks most about God's righteousness is clearly the book of Romans. And Paul reflects in chapter 1 about the unrighteousness of this world for which God's wrath is being revealed. Then he goes on in Romans 3 to say, but the righteousness of God has been revealed apart from the law. It has been revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Right, so where, if you want to see God's righteousness in this world, where do you look? You look to the coming of Christ. Christ came, and as Paul says in Romans 5, uh, Christ himself did what was righteous, and he earned the justification of his people. What is justification? It's being declared righteous. By Christ's own righteousness, he accomplished the righteousness for his people, righteousness that would be imputed to us, credited to us in our justification. And so, if we are to be zealous for the righteousness of God, brothers and sisters, there is a very simple way to do that. Be zealous for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The proclamation of Christ having come, having been revealed, and having righteously done all that the Father gave him to do. And through his righteousness, trusting in him, looking to him, his righteousness, credited to you that you might stand righteous before your heavenly Father. Every time God's word is preached and a sinner believes it, the unrighteousness of this world is being peeled back. It is being reversed step by step by step. And so, 
Do you wish to be righteous, zealous for God and his righteousness? Promote the gospel of Christ. Whether it be proclaiming it, whether it be praying for it, whether it be supporting it with your money, with your energy, whatever it may be. Be zealous for the gospel of Christ because this is how the righteousness of God, you might say, is reestablished in this world as the gospel continues to go forth until that last day when he brings the new heavens and new earth, which 2 Peter 3 tells us is the place where righteousness dwells. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this psalmist that you raised up of old who never even told us his name. And yet, Father, we are amazed at his profound spiritual reflections on you, on the human condition, and on this sinful world uh, in which we live. And Father, uh, we... We look in our own hearts, our own experiences, and we see various passions. Uh, we see uh, strong emotions and primal feelings. And as we are honest, O oh Lord, we recognize that so often they are very sinful. We see just how deeply rooted sin still remains in us. And yet we thank you for this text that shows us something of how we ought to feel, of how we ought to uh, desire, of how we ought to uh, be passionate. Father, we ask that you would cause us to long for you as you reveal yourself to us in the scriptures. We pray that we would be truly sorrowful for our sin, and yet sorrowful in a way that leads to repentance and thus also to joy. And Father, we pray that you would give us a zeal, a zeal for your righteousness, O Lord, in the midst of an unrighteous world. And as you give us a zeal for your righteousness, O Lord, may that truly be a zeal for your gospel message. We pray that you would bless the proclamation of your gospel from this pulpit, we pray that every one of us, O oh Lord, that we would be a praying people, a giving people, a people zealous to see the message of Christ continue to go forth in this world. And we look forward to that day, O oh Lord, when you establish that dwelling place of righteousness in which you have called us to abide with you forever. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.